the tartil of the Qur'an is, is to recite the Qur'an in a slow and distinct manner. So this is a command. The Qur'an tells us that the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to recite the Qur'an. It's one of the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet an al-Qur'an, to recite the Qur'an. And tirawa is those who recite the Qur'an properly. So tilawa in Arabic and tartil are, are related. They're related uh, because they share some of the letters which uh, in the Qur'an is, uh, is one of the mysteries of the Arabic languages that actually letters that uh, are found, even if it's two letters that are found there, you'll, you'll usually find some relationship between uh, the words, this is a type of ishtiqaq or derivation uh, in Arabic. So the the interesting thing about the uh, tartil is it's, it comes, the, the Arabic word is related to the rata. And rata in Arabic always has a relationship of one thing that follows another. So there's a type of uh, following and tilawa is also a word which means to follow. By the moon when it follows. So tilawa and tartil are related to following. So part of recitation of the Quran is actually following the Quran. On on the one hand, you're following the letters, but also you're actually you're being commanded to follow the Quran. And so if you look at the rata sound in Arabic, the you, you'll find. It, it relates to like things like rataba, which is routine, monotony, that's the Arabic word. Ratib is actually the, the practice, the daily practice that somebody does. Um, in some tradition, they, they call this uh, holy monotony or sacred monotony. The idea that, in essence, there's an aspect to life which is what some would call Groundhog Day, that life is, is these repeated days over and over. We wake up. Uh, the uh, the great poet um, T.S. Eliot said, you know, we measure our lives in coffee spoons, like just putting out the every day, the coffee or the tea or whatever you do, the brushing the teeth, these routines of life that have a type of monotony to them. But when you begin to practice a type of mindfulness, they actually become meaningful. When you, the, the more mindful you get, the more meaningful they become because these practices are inherently very human things, but they're also, they're practices that are related to our the, our, the cultivation or the preservation of our health. For instance, like brushing your teeth, that's related to the preservation of your health, which is very important. Or exercise, the preservation of the body, or eating well, 
the preservation of your energy because the caloric energy that we get from, at least it's the suburb for the caloric energy that we get to actually work in the world. So all of these aspects of life are actually really important. And when they're done with intention, then they become fused with a type of meaningfulness that is absent from a lot of other uh, people who don't, who aren't aware of what they're doing. So like these monotonous practices that are related to the preservation, uh, the enhancement of, of our health, there's also spiritual practices that we do every single day. And the fundamental and most important one above everything is the prayer. And the prayer is in the body because we're, we're embodied creatures. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made us creatures that are actually spirits embodied. So we, we, we've been incarnated. So our souls are, are incarnated. They're, they're, they're brought into a flesh and, and a new creation comes about which is a, a spiritual material creation, an earthly and a celestial. So the terrestrial component, which is the mud and the water that we're made of, and then the celestial component, which is the spirit and the, and the, and the consciousness or the mind itself, so that we have this, this extraordinary uh, spiritual component, which is our mind, the, the ability to think. And thoughts are a great mystery. There's, We know that the brain is obviously a type of hard drive, but where does the software come from? And where does the, the programming, because every computer, you have the hard drive, but then you have the software, and then you have the cloud, which we can't, we don't even see the cloud, where is the cloud? And so like that, our, I mean, a- analogously, our bodies are like the hard drive, that's all it is, but then there's the, software and then there's the cloud there's the thing we we can't even see that that all of our consciousness is uploaded onto and so where does all that come from so the spiritual component of the of the human self is extraordinary and we should really be marveling constantly because people people you know often say to me things like you know i really want to have a spiritual experience and my my response to that and i really genuinely mean that is, is what do you think you're having? Like, what do you think consciousness is? Consciousness itself, just being alive, being aware, being able to look at things around you. And this is, is a spiritual experience because it is, although it's through the vehicle of the five senses, but the five senses are only the vehicle for the experience. The experience is, is transcends the five senses. And, and this is why we dream. Where, where are dreams? Where, when we go to sleep, where, where, where is that world that we enter into? And people can live uh, entire lives in their dreams. Many people have experienced very long dreams that go on. And yet, if you actually measure it uh, the way we now know how to measure the dream period of sleep, it's actually very short periods of time. So how is that time expanded or contracted? And this is part of, of the mystery of just being in the world. We all have experienced, those of us who have gone to Medina or Mecca, we've experienced the, the time expansion that occurs in those places. We also, for instance, in Ramadan, we'll, we'll experience a shift in, in our own consciousness. Uh, time can actually expand. It seems you get more done. We call that baraka. And when you look at some of the lives of the people of the past, 
where did they get the time to do all they did? We have qadis, literally judges, who had full-time jobs. And when you look at their actual intellectual production, people like uh, Averroes, uh, Ibn Rushd, both the grandfather and the grandson, but if you look at what the, the actual, how did he do a commentary? He has a, a magisterial, the, the grandson has a magisterial work on the four medhebs, Bidayat al-Mushtahid which is, is still used to this day. It's, it's, it's an important work. It's probably the single most important work in comparative fiqh. And, and, and yet this man was a judge. He was married. He had a family. He had a social life. And then on top of that, in his spare time, he was able to write commentaries on most of the books of Aristotle. And if you read just, for instance, his his longer commentary of the Aristotle's De Anima, it's, it's mind-boggling. How, how could one man, one, know so much, but how could he produce so much in a lifetime? Or if you look at somebody like Fakhruddin al-Razi, how did he do this? One of their secrets is that they really understood the routine nature of life. It's interesting that routine has ra and ta in it. So even in our English language, the ra-ta, has that sound? Well, I'll will tell you a really strange thing that because when I was studying this, uh, what's called the ilm al-huruf, which I've always been since I found out about it, at least been fascinated by it. But I was, uh, yeah, I used to go through Hans Ver and look at these different. When I would find out, it's called usul, like you have usul al-logha, which are the triliteral roots, but then you have what's called usul with a tha, which are the uh, the the diliteral roots. So those are the roots that have two, and then the third one nuances it. So for instance, you have uh, something like nafasa. Uh, uh, so you have nafa, which relate to some kind of blowing, and then you have nafasa, which is breath, nafas, and then you have, for instance, and also nafas is related to blood, and we know now that oxygen. The blood is what oxygenates our body. So in essence, the blood like brings the wind throughout our body. But then you have like nafatha, like nafathati fil'uqad. So the tha then is like a, another blowing. It's like whew, to blow like a wind. And then you have nafaha, which is, is, is stronger than nafatha. And then you have nafakha, you know, so the nafkha. Is, is the blast of the trumpet. So that's nafa. And so the same you have rata. So you have like rataba, which is like a routine, something that you do. And, but and I came across this really interesting uh, word, rata'a. Like rataja is uh, to, to, to lock something. And I was wondering about that. And then I realized, because it has to do with a sequence of things. So I realized actually that when you lock something, there's a sequence to traditional locks. You have to pull and then move over and slide the lock itself. So there's actual sequence. But the one that struck me was rata'a, which means to graze, like goats grazing, yarta'u. And, uh, and I was wondering, what that, what, is there a relationship? And so I actually looked up how goats graze, and I was stunned to find out that they actually first eat the tops, and then they move, and then they come back and do the middle, and then they move, and then they go back and do the... So there's an actual sequential... The way they eat grass is done sequentially. And so it's actually... And obviously, these are these are the miraculous qualities of the Arabic language. 
So the, the point, I went off on a digression, but my point was, is that you have, in the Arabic language, you have uh, these extraordinary semantic fields. So the point, the point I was making, essentially, is that, that you have this monotony. You have this routine, rataba in Arabic. And you have these daily opportunities. What you do with that daily opportunity is exactly where your free will comes in. You choose. Each one of us chooses how we're going to use this day. And even though we make our plans, we also have to always include the re very real possibility that God has other plans. In fact, Ibn Atayilah says that the fool wakes up in the morning and says, what am I going to do today? And the wise man wakes up in the morning and says, what is God going to do with me today? Which does not mean that you don't plan. It just means that you recognize that when Musa went to find the fire for his family and to get some news, God had other plans. So when Musa arrived there and God said, I'm God and I'm going to talk to you. Moses didn't say, I didn't come here for that. I came here for the fire. He, 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 he allowed the interruption of his plans by the divine plan and just moved in that way. And so this is something that we all have to be aware of, that we, we, do, we should plan. Tadbir is part of life. But Dabir al-Latudabir, which is what Abu Hassan al-Shadri said, meaning plan not to plan, it really means plan not to decide your outcome or determine your outcome because that's what you can't do. Only Allah can do that. And so each day we have this extraordinary opportunity to do something with our lives, to hone our souls, to, to move towards a more perfect state. And, and this is essentially at the heart of what life is. I was once, uh, I had uh, the opportunity to have dinner with uh, the great South American writer, uh, Paulo Coelho, who wrote uh, The Alchemist. And, and we had a, an interesting conversation where he asked me what I thought the, the purpose of life was. And I told him, in my estimation, the real fundamental purpose of life is preparation for death. And he told me he had a really hard time accepting that. And he said it has to be more than that. And, and I said, well, I think that be, the fact that in each moment we are literally on the doors of infinity, that there's not a moment of your life, there's not a breath that you take, there's not a heartbeat that occurs in your body that does not hold within it the possibility of being the last that you take or the last that occurs. And because of that, you're on the threshold of infinity because we are of eternal beings. We, we were created, but we were created for eternity. And so, and part of my own experience of being in a head-on collision in a car when I was 17 years old and becoming intensely, acutely aware of the possibility of that transition. Because when you're 17, you have a sense of, of a type of almost immortality. There's just this idea that you can get away with anything. And that, that's why so many young people have tragic deaths because they, they just don't really 
put death into the equation of life. And yet it is, which is why the Prophet said that Tedika, that the inheritance laws are half of knowledge because death is half of life. You, we are all going to die. And so then it becomes, how do I prepare for death? Imam al-Ghazali wrote 40 books, which he called Ihya Ulum al-Din. All of those 40 books are in preparation for book 40, which is called the Book of Death, Kitab al-Mawt. So he, the entire corpus of that work is to lead up to the, the penultimate book, which is called the Book of Meditation, and then the Book of Death. And so all of life is preparation for us to be able to meditate in a deep level. And the greatest meditation that we can have is on the Book of Allah. Do they not deeply ponder this book? Or is there a seal upon their hearts? Imam al-Ghazali talks about the ocean of the Qur'an and that so many people remain at the shore of that ocean. And when I wrote the, the essay in the study Qur'an, I was asked to write about death. And, and for me it was very significant because the way I came into Islam was through a near-death experience. It's really what started me on my journey as a 17-year-old, as a just realizing that I could have died. And what, what I realized in, in writing that essay is that the entire Qur'an could be read as a profound death meditation. And I don't think that this is, is in any morbid sense. It's in a sense of making our lives count, making our lives meaningful. And there's, there's an actor, Christopher Reeves, who uh, I think some people might, older people might remember him as Superman. And he, he's a very talented man. He, he was an accomplished musician and other things, but he was also a uh, very uh, committed athlete. And he trained on horses. And one day his horse balked and, and before a jump. And when a horse does that, it's very dangerous for the rider because they can go head first. And he literally went head first and, and broke his neck. And, he, and I saw him in an interview and the woman asked him, like, how was he able to have this attitude that, you know, projected a type of positivity about his condition? And he said that he realized when this happened that there were two ways to view it. One, that it was meaningless. In other words, absurd. And, and the other, that it was meaningful. And that's a beautiful word, meaningful, which literally means full of meaning. And so that's what he chose. And that's where free choice comes into it, is to see what happens to us. It's our responses to what happens to us which distinguish us amongst people. And so whatever happens to you, whatever God sends to you, whatever he thrusts upon you, how you respond to that is going to determine the, the metal of your very being. It's going to determine who you are and, and whether you're worthy of the mantle of being this rational, intelligent creature that God has created for the solitary purpose of knowing in a fully conscious way your creator. That is a stunning 
proposition that this is this is why we were created and so to squander this extraordinary opportunity that we were given which is about 60 to 70 years for most of us the prophet sallallahu said a'maru ummati ma bayna 60 wa 70 the vast majority of my my ummah which includes the muslims and the non-muslims so his ummah is not just the muslims it's the muslims and the non-muslims because he was sent to the last phase of the human beings he, he's he's the only prophet that we know of that was sent to all of humanity all the other prophets were sent i mean adam obviously was sent to all of humanity that existed at that time but the prophet is unique in that he was sent to all of these diverse peoples all of the different races the different ethnicities the different also the different capacities he was sent to the philosophers and he was sent to the peasants and he was sent to the poor people and the rich people and he was sent to the arab and the non-arab so he sallallahu alaihi wasallam was sent to all of these people as a warner and a giver of glad tidings and so he said the majority of my people live between 60 and 70 years which is pretty consistent with what we know with uh, modern science now so you have between 60 and 70 years the majority of us some of us will will die before that and others will live beyond that but not much 10 20 30 maximum maybe 40 or 50 years beyond that i mean i think the oldest person was 122 recently so the the opportunity that you have is is not a lot of time it's about 20,000 days it's just not a lot of time and so each day becomes in this holy monotony of just doing the work doing the practice doing the uh the things that god has given us to do and one of the most important ones is reading the quran on a daily basis and really doing one's best to focus and to concentrate on the book and although the the translation in no way can convey ever convey the power of the arabic uh, embodiment of the meanings it it just simply can't I, and i say that as somebody who knows english relatively well and and who knows arabic relatively well i i just cannot emphasize enough the fact that the impoverishment of translations the inability of the translation and i would argue in any language simply because of the extraordinary richness of the arabic vocabulary of the syntactical possibilities of the of the quranic structures but also the newness of the arabic language the fact that it that that the the quranic language in and of itself is an entirely new type of language so but despite that if one does not have arabic uh, one should at least attempt to learn it devotionally to be able to recite it and then just to take a portion of it each day and and to try to look into the meanings uh, from from whatever translations that you can find as long as they're good ones so that is i think one of the most important practices that one can do every day and i i'm i'm always bewildered by people that have a lot of awrad and yet they don't have a serious wird from the quran like i would put the quran before any awrad uh and and the the teachers that i've had like murabt al-haj lam yaftur lisanuhu an dhikrillah and his dhikr was the quran 
uh, he just, mashallah, he constantly recited the Quran. Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, I spent many, many, uh, a good deal amount of time with him, constant recitation of Quran, constantly, and, and also constantly coming upon new meanings. I mean, I, I had a really extraordinary, and I'll, and I'll conclude with this, I had a very extraordinary experience the other day because I had, I, you know, I had this little makeshift sundial, and I, and, um, I, fortunately, where we live in California, there's a lot of sun, and Murabt al-Hajj always measured every single day when the sun was out. He always measured the shadows to determine the prayer times every single day. And there's a hadith in al-Hakim, radiallahu that says that the best of the service of Allah, خير عباد الله الذين يراعون الأهلة والأذلة ذكرا لله that the best of the servants of God are those who, who are constant in their vigilance of monitoring the shadows and the new moons as a way of remembering God. And these are the mu'adhinun, the people that call people to prayer. So traditionally, that's how they did it. They would measure the shadows. And so he did that every single day, and he taught me how to do that. Rahimullah. And so I was measuring the shadow, but I sat there watching. I had a little makeshift... Um, sundial and the gnomon which was a pencil poked into a paper plate and so I, I had it set to north and I was watching it as it moved um, past the, uh, the, the, the compass direction of, of due north which is the beginning of Dhuhr and according to Ibn Arafah in his book Al-Hudud he says it's intiqal uh, al-shams uh, so the, the, the sun has something called istiwa, which is where it sits for a few moments at the 90 degree. If you look at the earth as a flat plane, which by sharia it is, even though we know that it's round now, but the experience of it will always be flat. So you look at it, it's basically a semicircle of 180 degrees. So when the sun rises in the west at, at the zero degree, moves up, when it reaches the 90th degree uh, ge geometrically, that's called istiwa, yistewi. So it sits at that point for a few minutes, and then it will begin to move across. Uh, so that one daraja is dhuhr. Once it gets to 91 degrees, that's Dhor. It takes four minutes from the Istiwa, from the point of the Zenith. So I was watching this, and you can actually see the shadow. It's very subtle, but you can actually see it move pretty quickly. I mean, it'll move very slightly. So I was watching it for a few minutes move, and I thought of the verse in the Quran in Surah Al-Furqan, which says, Have you not considered how your Lord moves the shadow. And had he wanted, he would have made it stationary. In other words, not moving. So this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran. And so there I am literally uh, considering, as Allah told me to do, uh, considering the shadow and reflecting on uh, the fact that the shadow is moving and that, that it's God who made that 
that shadow move. And then, and then when he says, Had he wanted, he would have made it stationary. Now this is very interesting because he says, and then we made the sun as an indicator of the movement of the shadow. So that's in Al-Furqan. So when he says that, now traditionally, they, uh, if you read the tafsirs on it, it's very interesting what they talk about. I mean, Fakhruddin al-Razi gives an incredible uh, tafsir of that, just about the nature of shade and the fact that everything is shade, and we wouldn't have known that had we not seen that type of shade, the, the specific shade. There's also a nice iltifat in that ayah, which is where he goes from third person to uh, first person. Ja'ala wa ja'alna. Very interesting, one of the rhetorical devices in the Quran. So what I realized at that moment was that's actually a proof for Foucault's pendulum. It's a proof that the that the earth is moving and that the sun is stationary. Because Allah didn't say we made the sun a cause of the movement of the shadow. It's Allah who's moving the shadow, but he's moving it through the movement of the earth. So the earth is turning on its own axis, and then it's also moving through its, its each is in its own orbit. So the earth has its orbit, and then it's, got, it's turning on its own axis, and that's what moves the shadow, is the earth turn, and not the movement of the sun, which is exactly what that verse indicates, is that the sun is not moving, it's rather a delil, but not a sabab for the movement of the shadow. And that really struck me as amazing. In fact, it struck me as so amazing that I immediately called our great astronomer friend, uh, Yusuf Ismail, to share that with him. And he agreed with me that he thought that was, was a really fascinating insight. He, he's been, mashallah, for 30 years. Uh, he was one of my early students 30 years ago in, uh, in uh, and, and he, mashallah, he's a very brilliant, uh, scientist so he he studied at stanford and did a phd there in engineering so he's all he's always been interested in nature but he learned uh how to to do the sacred timekeeping and then he was very influenced by sheikh khatri the mauritanian scholar that we had here for that period so he started actually watching learning how to uh monitor the moon and he's been doing it consistently i think he's probably now one of the most knowledgeable people about sacred timekeeping, particularly about the um, the the new moons and how to determine them. So he he uh, he's been doing that. It's a great service because every community is supposed to have a muaqit, somebody that does that. So he also teaches geometry at uh, at Zaytuna College. So the students actually learn how to do these things. They, they make sundials and they learn how to uh, to determine uh, sacred timekeeping. So alhamdulillah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all openings this Ramadan in the Book of Allah and give us a love for the Book of Allah and a, a restoration of the Book of Allah as the, as the central and most important uh, core of the teachings of our tradition. The Prophet Sallallahu miracle is the Book of Allah and he was sent 
to teach us the book of Allah through his sunnah and kana khuluqur quran his character was quranic so may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restore uh, us to the character of the quran to the knowledges of the quran to the ocean of the quran may we become divers in the sea of the quran and may we become uh, those who bring forth the pearls and the coral from the depths of the quran amen